0: All right, let's pray. Father, thank you. Uh, Father, I thank you especially for, for Harry's testimony and for the uh, amazing work that you did in her life and her family's life. So we just continue to bless that. And Lord, I just pray for uh, this word that I, I'm about to share, that it would go straight to the, uh, the hearts and the minds of the hearers. Let the words and the truth be yours and not mine. We give you thanks, Lord, and ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Alrighty, so we've been doing this series called Questions and Answers About God and Money. And um, we've covered really a whole variety of topics. Um, we've talked about understanding what the Bible really says about money and how that's, you know, how, what that all is about. Uh, we've talked about how to be a good steward of your money. Of, of actually of God's money that he has given to you. <laughs> um, we've talked about how to store up treasure in heaven, as scripture talks about. And then last week we talked about the T word, tithing, right, and and in giving. And so um, I really had originally sort of planned that that was going to be it, that we'd do those six and that was going to be sort of the, the end of the, the series, but then I started thinking about this subject of, of debt, which I have also coded the D word. Um, because those two things seem to be sort of subjects that tend to be verboten in the church, right? You can't, you know, don't talk about that. That's the whole you've gone from preaching to meddling thing. Um, but I really think the subject is too important um, not to talk about. And And actually the scripture has a ton to say about it. And so I think it's important that we kind of explore that uh, as well. So what I want to do is just spend this morning really kind of looking at this whole area of debt and how, uh, what scripture has to say about it. So, first off, that's on, and there we go. Why is the topic of debt so important? Well, I think it's because primarily debt has become not the exception but the rule in most people's lives. The average American family devotes approximately one fourth of its spendable income on outstanding debt. This is a fact that just absolutely blew me away. Since 1945, consumer debt in the United States has multiplied 31 times. The IRS calculates that the average filer spends 10 times more paying interest on debts than he or she gives to charitable causes. If all evangelical Christians were out of debt, hundreds of millions of dollars would be freed up for God's kingdom. Our families would be stronger, because it, that, that financial pressure that comes upon a family because of indebtedness uh, would go away. And frankly, I mean, the statistics don't lie, indebtedness is a major reason for divorce. Families get underwater monetarily, and that just starts the conflict, and Uh, The differences become unreconcilable. See right now, home loans, mortgages, auto loans, credit cards, that all seems really normal to us. But debt is in fact an aberration that evokes pretty severe warnings if you really read scripture and pay attention to what it says about it. And so... I think we need to take a closer look at it just to understand kind of the serious problem that it can pose. Now, what what is interesting to me is that 100 years ago, debt was regarded as an earned privilege for a very select few. Primarily entrepreneurial business people, someone trying to get a business started, or farmers who faced a real hardship in their lives, you know, such as they lost their crops due to a tornado, So that was really what debt was kind of limited to. Now it's grown to essentially become an inalienable right for everybody. And the whole concept of borrowing has become this integral part of our lives. So you have to ask yourself, why do banks and credit card companies repeatedly beg us to borrow from them, listing dozens of ways that you could use the money, right? Well, the answer is really very simple, because they make money when you do. They profit greatly from your debt. Now, certainly there are some cases in which the individual who borrows benefits as well. But in most cases, unless you have chosen very carefully, you're going to experience more harm than you do benefit. Ask yourself as well, when you get your credit card statement in the mail, why does it show a payment due of only $35 as opposed to the balance due of 1500 Because the less you pay now, the more the creditor gets later. And if most people would just pay off that on a monthly basis, a lot of those lenders would go out of business. And so I think a question that Christians have to ask themselves is this, how can can we, how can you, or if you're saying it, how can I, be fully free to serve God when we are serving human creditors? On one hand, if you sort of think about it, this whole debt-centered economy has kind of developed like those uh, electronic bug zapper gadgets that you have out on your patio. You know, they they emit this light that's very attractive. And the bugs just blissfully fly right into the trap. It's kind of like this. It's like, oh, that's a really cool looking TV. And it's on sale. I don't have any cash, but no problem. Here's my MasterCard. Zap. (laughs) Right? Right? Question number two. Why should debt usually be avoided? Whoops. I don't know why this does that sometimes. <clears throat> now, the Bible does not absolutely forbid debt. Okay. But it issues some very strong cautions concerning it. First, let's look at Proverbs 22.7, which essentially says that debt is servitude. Okay. Just as the rich rule the poor... So the borrower is servant to the lender. Okay. But we're also told in 1 Corinthians by Paul, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of human masters. All right. So now you're going to have to reconcile those two statements. See, God says borrowers put themselves in servitude to lenders. And then he tells us that we should only be slaves to him. Isn't that, all by itself, a pretty powerful warning against going into debt? Now, if you go back into the Mosaic Law, the Law of Moses that was put forth when the Israelites were um, came out of exile, made the exodus out of Egypt. there's this very strong connection that that law makes between debtors and slaves. It was so horrible and so detrimental in the long term that God commanded this thing called a year of jubilee every 50 years when the debts would be canceled. And see, at that time, more often than not, if you couldn't pay back your debts, you sold yourself into slavery as a means of paying that debt off. Your, your work would, in fact, pay the debt. And, and so God had a special provision for that, too. He commanded freedom for the slaves after six years of, of service. And so here it is in uh, Deuteronomy. Dang it. There it is in Deuteronomy. This is how it must be done. Everyone must cancel the loans they have made to their fellow Israelites. They must not demand payment from their neighbors or relatives for the Lord's time of release has arrived. And then if you jump that to verse 2, if you jump to verse 12, it says, if a fellow Hebrew sells himself or herself to be your servant and serves you for six years, in the seventh year you must set the servant free. When there was a time of famine in Israel, Substantial debt was regarded as an act of great despair. I mean, it was like an absolute last last thing you could do. Nehemiah says, The people cried, We have mortgaged our fields, vineyards, and homes to get food during the famine. And others said, We have had to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to pay our taxes. We belong to the same family as those who are wealthy, and our children are just like theirs. Yet, we must sell our children into slavery just to get enough money to live. We have already sold some of our daughters, and we are helpless to do anything about it, for our fields and vineyards are already mortgaged to others. That's how desperate it had gotten. They were actually selling their children just to get by. And so, if you sort of take all of this together, the assumption that you can draw from this passage is that these things such as mortgaging, land, and homes really would never be done if, if everything were normal. Okay? So what else does the Bible have to say about debt? Well, let's look at Romans 13.8. This is a verse that uh, gets some discussion. So if you look in the NASB, which is the New American Standard Version of the Bible, Romans 13.8 is translated as, owe nothing to anyone. All right. Now, if you look at the NIV, it says this, let no debt remain outstanding. Hmm, exactly. So uh, a couple of theologians, Hudson Taylor and actually Charles Spurgeon, believed that Romans 13.8 prohibited debt completely. They interpreted it the first way. Now, there's also a lot of theologians that take issue with that. For example, if going into debt is always a sin, then why does Scripture give guidelines about lending and even encourage lending under certain circumstances? See, if debt is always sin, then isn't lending aiding and abetting? And you've got to believe that God would not encourage that. Now, I would say unless there's an overwhelming need or a compelling rationale to borrow, it's unwise for God's children to put themselves under the curse of indebtedness. Now, I want to clarify something at this point. In our society, we're not really talking specifically about home mortgages, okay? That's kind of a different subject, and there's a different take on that, because that is is going into debt, but there's equity involved in it as well. And so it's not quite the same as just buying stuff and putting it on credit. You know, your Home is a little bit different. And I'm not going to get into that today. But just know that when I'm really talking about debt, we're really talking more about consumer debt, not so much mortgages. All right. So at the very least, if you looked at the NIV translation of Romans 13.8, At the very least, it proves that we shouldn't normally borrow and that we should always pay off debt as soon as we can. Now, if we take God's word seriously, then we should avoid debt whenever possible. And in those rare cases when we do go into debt, we should make every effort to get out of it as quickly as we can. And you should never undertake debt without prayerful consideration and wise counsel. Question four, what should we ask ourselves before going into debt? So, if you've got something that you, you know, got your eye on, and you're you're thinking about getting that, and it's going to require you to borrow money to get it, here's some things that you probably ought to be asking yourself. First, is the fact that I don't have enough resources to pay cash for something God's way of telling me that it isn't His will for me to buy it? Or, is it possible that this thing may have been God's will, but poor choices have put me in a position where I can't afford to buy it? And if that's the case, wouldn't I do better to learn the lesson that God is trying to teach me by foregoing it now, by his provision and my diligence then later saving enough to actually go and buy it and pay cash for it. And then I think some people develop what you could probably call a debt mentality. And what a debt mentality is, it's a distorted perspective that involves a bunch of invalid assumptions. So for example, Uh, One would be, we need more than what God has given us. (laughs) How about, God doesn't know best what our needs are. Or, God has failed to provide for our needs, forcing us to take matters into our own hands. That always works out really well. Trust me. If God doesn't come through the way we think he should, we can always find another way. It's really quiet in here. (laughs) Just because today's income is sufficient to make our debt payments, tomorrow's will be too. I.e., our circumstances will never change. See, people that have convictions against borrowing will almost always find ways to avoid it on the other hand <clears throat> people without a firm conviction about going into debt will always be able to manufacture a rationale to allow them to borrow consider some statements that come directly from God's word first timothy 6 6 through 8 True godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. Remember, hearses don't pull trailers. right? No, no U-Hauls behind hearses. So if we have food, enough food and clothing, let us be content. From Ecclesiastes. Those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. And then a little bit different take on Romans 12 too. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. See, if, if we expect God to meet the needs that we manufacture through our own indebtedness is really an attempt to manipulate the Almighty. It's not going to work. Question five. What do wise money managers and uh, understand about spending and debt? Okay, so here's just... I think six little things that really are kind of good to think about um, as you're contemplating this subject. Number one, nothing is a good deal unless you can afford it. (laughs) (laughs) See, paying $220,000 for a house worth $270,000 really sounds like a great deal. But see, countless people step right into financial bondage because they spend money they don't have in order to underwrite a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. We've got to understand that God is not behind every good deal you run across. (laughs) Self-control means turning down most good deals on the things we want because God may have other and better plans for, whose money? His money. Here's one of my favorites. You don't save money by spending money. <laughs> let's, let, let's be real clear on this. I actually had an economics professor that said, this, this will always cracked me up. I was in college, I had an economics professor who said his wife would come home from shopping and say, I saved you $50 today. <laughs> All right. Let's be clear. Saving money is setting it aside for a future purpose. It remains accessible to you. Spending money makes it disappear. It's no longer at your disposal. Okay? If you buy an $80 sweater on sale for $30, how much do you save? Nothing! (laughs) This is not... New math, this is not hard. You spent $30. You didn't save anything. (laughs) And if you keep thinking that buying things on sale is saving money, you will eventually go broke. You've saved so much. (laughs) All right, number three. Just because you can afford something doesn't mean God wants you to buy it. Remember, God usually grants us excess not to find new ways to spend it, but in order to give it to others who are in need. Every purchase should be examined in light of its alternative uses or ministry potential. So before you spend $20 or $100 or $1,000 on something, we really should weigh the value of what it is we're going to purchase against that, what that same money could have done if it were used a different way. This is kind of like Wesley's rules, right? Sort of a throwback to something we talked about several weeks ago as to how he would think about spending money. We should understand and resist the manipulative nature of advertising. See, responsible spending says yes to real needs, but it says no to created needs. All right? The whole point of advertising is that it thrives on instilling discontent with us. Right? You have to think about this. The people who are writing these things have master's degrees in persuading us to buy stuff we really don't need. And so we really need to think about the fact that, you know, that thing that looks so wonderful um, is probably not as wonderful as it looks. And then number six is fairly simple, and that's that little expenses add up to big problems. See, for a lot of people, money is like water from a leaky faucet. It just kind of keeps trickling through our hands. Now, the little drips and drabs don't seem like much, but eventually it adds up to gallons. A dollar here, ten dollars there, a hamburger here, a mocha there, video rentals, a round of golf, extra tools, new clothes. See, if a swimming pool is full of leaks, you can pump in more water, but it'll never be enough until you actually find the leaks and fix them. Question number six. Have you learned how to set a budget and live on it? So imagine that you have entrusted a large sum of money to a money manager, and you've told him, that uh, he can take out only what he needs to live on, you know, now and then, but he's supposed to invest the bulk of it on your behalf. Now, a few months later, you call him, and you're just curious to see how your investments are doing. And he says, there are no investments. None of your money is left. Well, imagine you'd probably be pretty shocked. And you would probably ask, where did it all go? And so kind of sheepishly, your money manager responds, you know, well, I can think of some expenses here and there, but one thing led to another, and before I knew it, it was just all gone. So what would you think about that? How would you feel, you know, if that had happened to you? And then flip it around and say, well, how does God feel when at the end of the month nothing's left from the money that He entrusted to us and we don't even know where it went? If some of us ran a corporation and handled its money like, the, like we do God's, we'd all go to prison. <laughs> Proverbs 27 23 and 24 says this. Be sure you know the condition of your flocks. Give careful attention to your herds, for riches do not endure forever. God, I think, in this is God is saying to us, know what your assets are and know where they must go. We've got to get a grip on this, right? It goes back once again to something we said probably a month ago, which is we have to understand whose money this is. This is not our money. This is God's money that he has entrusted to us as money managers or stewards, was the word we used, to steward it for him. And we talked about what that looks like from a responsible standpoint. And so if if you don't have a well-thought-out plan for what you're going to do with God's money, let me give you a little hint. There are other people who do. And so there's two really practical steps that you can take to really get a grip on your spending. Recording expenditures and making a budget. You know, and if you're married, I know this can be difficult, but it ought to at least foster a healthy dialogue about what we do with our money and then help us to develop better spending habits. And, you know, it's sort of the whole thing about... um, One of the ways that I've that has always helped me, if I want to lose some weight, there's a little there's a number of apps, but I've got one in particular where you have to record everything you eat. I know there are other systems that do the same thing, but you have to write down, you know, and, and log the calories of everything you you know you put in your mouth. And um, it keeps you, it keeps me at least from putting a lot of things in my mouth if I know i got to write them down and I know I'm going to have like 10 calories left for dinner. <laughs> so we can be kept from making these unwise decisions simply by knowing the fact that if we spend that money, we're going to have to write it down and then you know, show it to somebody else, whether that's our spouse or a financial advisor, a trusted friend that you've enlisted to help you with this. Know if it's a problem. God tells us that He is going to hold us accountable for our money management. So, why should we not hold ourselves accountable while we can and even enlist somebody else to help us with it? I think it will not only improve our mental health, probably will improve your marital health as well. And, like I said, financial disorder is one of the leading causes of personal and familial stress and that it often leads to divorce. Question number seven. Have you learned to wait upon the Lord? (laughs) How often do we take matters into our own hands and we just spend impulsively and have never bothered to ask God to provide that for us? How often do we go out and buy something a week or maybe a month before God would have provided it to us for free or at a minimal cost if only we had asked him about it and then waited? Now, if he doesn't provide it, okay, fine. Do we not all agree that God knows what we need better than we do? And so why don't we pray about it and then actually give him a chance to answer the prayer? And I'm talking longer than five minutes. (laughs) Right? Why not discipline yourselves not to buy something unless you've waited a particular period of time before you buy it? I think if you wait, it will eliminate almost all of the impulsive buying that we tend to do, right? I mean, something that really attracts me today, and I'm like, oh, I really, if I just, I'm going to wait three months, I probably don't even care about it three months down the road, which, interestingly enough, is probably how I would feel about it if I actually had bought it anyway, right? I mean, think about how, uh, you know, how our desire for something is so strong and then we buy it and it ends up in a drawer somewhere. I mean, just go to a garage sale and you ought to get the idea of what we're talking about here, right? So setting this waiting period gives God the opportunity to provide what you want, to provide something different, maybe something better, or to show us that we really don't need it at all we ought to use the money differently. There are people that will say, Well, I'll just fill out the loan application. And if it goes through, then I'll take that as a sign that God wants me to borrow the money. Well, just because a lender is willing to give you a loan doesn't mean that God approves of your decision to borrow. I mean, think of it this way. It's really no different than just because a clerk at a convenience store will sell you a lottery ticket doesn't mean that God's okay with gambling. Or, as I like to call lottery tickets, attacks on the naive. Some of you understand that. Matthew 6:33 suggests God will provide for our basic material needs if we will seek first his kingdom. But nowhere in scripture that I have ever found does he promise to repay for all of the debts we acquire through our own greed, impatience, or presumption. And so in this age when we seem willing to unwilling I should say to wait for anything God may desire for us to discipline ourselves and to stay out of debt, mainly to teach us to wait upon the Lord. And I think if we will wait for him instead of just rushing on ahead and getting this stuff, that we will be amazed at what he will provide and then what we learn about ourselves and our own needs and wants in the process of doing this. Amen? Amen. All right. Now I'm going to start something this week that I am hoping, planning, is going to be a, uh, a regular weekly part of our service. And I've decided to call this Living by the Book. Um, now this is going to be kind of a little subsection, I guess. We have the message, but then this is going to be just a part of A way that each week we can sort of help um, increase our faith and build confidence in this idea of being naturally supernatural, which you know has sat up there on the wall for a year or two, and has been part of our really our DNA for a long time. This idea of uh, of living as far as what the kingdom really says we should be doing. Now, it may not always look the same. Some, most of the weeks we'll probably have video clips, uh, as is the case this week. Some weeks we may have testimonies. We actually had a very nice testimony from Harry earlier. And I, and I called it this be, for a couple of reasons. For this idea of doing something by the book means, in, in general vernacular, to do something exactly as it is laid out in the law or in the rules or whatever you want to call it well, don't we call the Bible our rules for living, right? And, and it also was taken loosely from a quote that I saw from Randy Clark. And Randy said this, For many Christians, Scripture is not simply a book to be read and studied, but it is an invitation into a lifestyle of supernatural engagement. Truly, such followers of Jesus desire to be doers of the word not hearers only. This should be celebrated rather than rejected. And so this is that idea of, he's, what he's really talking about is this idea of living by the book, of actually what we see in Scripture and what we are called upon to do in Scripture can actually still be done. Right? It's not just a, a history book. It is a living word that is still active and uh, powerful, yet today. And so I want to show you just a brief, it's about three minutes long, just a little video clip. And a lot of these will probably take this form. Um, And if you're familiar at all with Darren Wilson, Darren has produced a number of movies. Um, Finger of God was his very first one, but there's been a number of after that. And he's now doing a a, a 20-week series on questions with God. And in those, he and some other folks sit around a table and talk about various issues that um, may have come up in the course of filming something. And so what they're talking about today is sort of this idea of what's the point of a power encounter meaning what's the point of praying for someone and seeing them healed okay why would we do that so let me let me let you let them answer the question it is isn't it i am not sure why it's not there we go.
1: I think a good example of what you were talking about earlier is actually in this episode as well. If you guys remember, before that, we were at Paul's gate. Mm-hmm. And we passed a woman who had or had a very bad wrist injury. It was all yeah. wrapped up. and But she couldn't speak a lick of English, mm-hmm. right? And there's nobody yeah, to interpret. Well we remember. And, we, and you guys prayed for her, and you're trying to communicate. There's, you can't do it. And at some point, I think you're just like, Lord, heal. You, know, like you just, just did it. Just like, put go. your hands
2: we, we pray. We're praying. Pray. 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 Good. The is praying? it? Is it? Ah, ah, mm. ah, ah. <laughs> no. Be healed right now. All pain, get out in okay. Jesus' name. Okay.
1: And then, what is it like? Maybe five, ten minutes later, we're about to head out, and she comes back with a friend who speaks a little yeah. bit of broken English. What did you do to her? <laughs> yeah. Because Daughter, actually, because she, like it that. feels. Yeah. It's yes, it's better. What do, you do I forgot about? That. And there I was, was and you guys we're able to pray more for the risk, but, like, because of the communication, there wasn't really an ability to, like, go into the kind of depth and nuances of, like, Jesus is inviting you, that kind of thing. Yeah. It was just like, you know, we're just, like, all we can really do at this point is pray for
2: even more healing. Yeah. And, when and she have comes a good day, right? It's like when up. she comes back, it's almost like she's, like, and we're, like, we pray. If I remember correctly, it was, like, we, pr- we prayed for her and she goes, and what else? It was almost like, that's it. Yeah. You know, that's, you know, because their concept of prayer was just that was just something right. okay, you're speaking about. But, I mean, somebody would say, again, what's the point of that? Yeah. Right? Okay. 20, 30, 40, 50,000 people in these mass healings that Jesus did in the gospel. This isn't prophetic. Let's just get practical. <laughs> There's, how is he praying for people? You know what he's doing? He does it. Right. Time to sit there yeah. for 30 minutes with each person, he'd still be there. Yeah. yeah. And so I, to me, to me, if I care about the person, and even if the person doesn't get healed, if they know that, man, I just really felt love. Like I haven't felt loved in a long time and cared for and connected with someone else. I think if we can can move into that as our mindset, we have to believe that just like Shampa, just by a tender hug, you can't get away from, man, I encounter God today. Mm-hmm. With her hand getting better, you can't tell me that even now from time to time when she looks down at her wrist, she doesn't think about it. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. At the very
1: least, she understood Jesus. Yeah. Right? She understood
2: Jesus. 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 You know, I mean, she was experiencing Jesus. And you know, it, it, here's the thing, in all the stuff that we're doing, if you, my, fr- my fr- I've got a friend, another Brian friend, who says, we're putting Jesus on display for the community to see so that they realize they want him. And it's so true. Mm -hmm. In doing these things, we're putting Jesus on display. So many people are going to take shots and going, oh, you're self-promoting or you're trying to do your ministry or you're trying to do... We hear that all the time. But you're really putting Jesus on display and saying, don't you want him?
0: is that cool? See, we have, we, and I will ask them to come now, if, if you've been released to pray, if you would come up, um, come up front. We, we ask these people to come up here and to pray every week. And if you think about what they just said, they are, in effect, offering Jesus to you. And so the question that I have to ask you is, the same question that chad asked don't you want him and so if you come here on a sunday morning solely to sing a few songs and to listen to me ramble then you're missing out on a lot of the gospel and so we want to we want to just continue to be much more intentional about doing This kind of ministry. And so, um, if you've got, Jesus can heal brokenness on any level, whether it's physical, whether it's emotional, doesn't matter. And I guarantee you that if you come up and you will get, you need something, you need prayer for something, at the very least, you will go away feeling loved. And that the person who was praying for you truly cared and wanted with all their heart to be healed. Now we don't control what God does. We're simply the medium, the vessel through which he works. All right, we're going to pray here in a moment. Um, I'm going to do a quick blessing of our food so that if you can go over um, and eat. Uh, Andre reminded me that we wanted to make sure that you know if you're a visitor here today, um, you're invited to come to stay, and you can eat for free. We'd love to uh, just have you stay and and have a meal with us. Um, So if we could get the lights, please. Thank you. And so I will uh, just kind of do a general blessing of that and a dismissal, and then what you do next is up to you you can stay, you can get prayer you can stay in worship and just be quiet you can go across the hall and uh, enjoy lunch with everybody else so Father I thank you thank you for that healing that we saw a woman who didn't even know what these people were doing and then comes back later and wants to know what they did because she doesn't understand what happened but this risk that was hurting her all of a sudden feels better. And Lord, we know you want to do that each and every day to countless people. If only we'll step out in faith and be the one to go forth and do that. Thank you for all those who are gathered here today. We thank you for the food that has been provided for us that you would bless it so that it would then bless us with nourishment with the ability to continue to go about our day and to seek your will so we just give you praise Father and thanks so grateful for who you are and for all you do for the love that you have for us May we each and every one find a way to pass that love on to somebody else this week, to be Jesus to someone else. So we give you the praise and the thanks and all of the glory. And ask all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you. I hope you'll stay. Um, and would love to... uh, see you across the hall, but if not, have a wonderful week, and I hope to see you next week.